Well, good morning again. We're going to look at 2 Samuel chapter 23. If you want to go to your Bibles and meet me there, you're going to see in the life of David, there are several stories in, in the biography that are iconic examples of what it means to be fully devoted to Jesus Christ. There are stories that give us a picture of what it means to become like Christ in a particular area of life. And today, in 2 Samuel chapter 23, there is a beautiful portrait that we don't want to miss out on. By, 20, by chapter 23, the biographer has finished the storyline, and now he's trying to draw an end to his in-depth biography of David and wants to include as many details as possible. And so in chapter 23, there's, he inserts one of the Psalms that David writes because David that's essential to knowing David is that, no, he's a, he's a songwriter. He's a musician. And then after that, there's a whole section. The largest part of chapter 23 is dedicated to a list of the soldiers that served with David. Because David wasn't just a songwriter, and he wasn't just a soldier. He was a brilliant military commander. And the author here, this historian, wants us to know that David, while he was there to make the transition the kingdom from a cardboard you know fort to a fortified city he did not do that alone and so the biographer says okay i want you to know if if david is david's reign is camelot then these are the knights of the round table these are the knights of the round table and it lists 37 names of men that served by david's side and the name in Hebrew of these warriors is Gibberin. I just love that word. I don't know a lot of Hebrew words. Gibberin, mighty men. David's mighty men. Each one of them earned a silver star and a few Medal of Honor recipients. These men were faithful to David all the way back before he was king, before he was famous. And they were from all throughout the kingdom of Israel. Actually, beyond the borders of Israel, there were people outside of Israel that wanted to be part of being in the Gibberine, the mighty warriors, the 37, the mighty men. And of the 37, there were the three, the three. These are David's three musketeers. These were the warriors' warriors. Even the, 30, the other 34 are compared to the three. They each have a story. Abashi was the first that's mentioned there. He's the minister of war, and he didn't win his five stars by pushing little pieces around a map in some boardroom somewhere. He won, he earned that title in the battlefield. As a matter of fact, it's said that he has the highest kill ratio of a spear thrower in the world. It says that he killed 800 men with one spear. Still the record number of people killed by a spear. Eleazar is the second one mentioned, and he's a brilliant fighter as well. Wonderful story about he and David are leading the Israeli troops against the Philistines. And after Eleazar and David mock and, and taunt the Philistines, the Philistines rush towards the Israel army and the Israel army, mostly, actually, almost, they're all farmers. These two men turn around, 
and they are running back to the farm. <laughs> and so these two men fought day and night and defeated the Philistine onslaught. And at the end of the fight, this is the, probably the story that David likes to tell, is Eleazar's hand was like had, had cramped around his sword. It was like frozen to his sword. He couldn't get, he couldn't get it off his hand. The third of the three is Shammah. His story is he was in a field with some other soldiers, Israeli soldiers, and they were protecting the field because that was life sustenance to the village. And the Philistines came upon them, and it was fight time, and Israel soldiers did what they did best, and that's run home. <laughs> so this warrior single-handedly defeats these Philistines and chases them, wee, 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 all the way home. These are David's mighty men and the three. I think one of the reasons there's a list in the stories about these 37 is because the author wants us to know the kind of company that David keeps. You can judge a person by the company they keep. And also the quality of David's leadership because you can tell the quality of a leader by the quality of the people that are loyal to them. And David was... I'm sure he was president of the choir, but he was the commander of these men. These are snake-bit, battle-torn men that serve their king and serve their God by, in, in deep ways. And they were deeply loyal to David, committed to following him wherever he went. That loyalty, that's kind of the point of the story here. The, the, the author wants us to know how loyal were these, the three. So he tells this, well, I've got a war story for that. Let me tell you about this. So he hearkens back to the day, a season back when David was anointed the king of Israel, the future king of Israel. But in this season, he's on the run from the current king, Saul, hunted like a dog. And it's also when the Philistines were ruling the geography at the time. And... David has found himself in Adalom, the caves of Adalom. It's about seven miles south and west of Bethlehem. That's important. It comes up later. And David is living the life of a fugitive, not the life of a promised king. And some, something happens in that life of living in a cave where he wasn't just literally in a cave. He was emotionally in a cave. He was going to a, a very dark place. He was growing weary. And when we grow weary, we get nostalgic. And in that nostalgia, David sighs. Here's what the passage says. And David sighs and says, wouldn't it be wonderful to just have a drink from that well inside the gates of Bethlehem? <laughs> and it, oh, wouldn't it be nice to have a drink? from that well inside the gates of Bethlehem. You know, when we grow tired, when we grow weary, and we're away from home, we get nostalgic, we get all sentimental, often about food or drink, thinking, oh, if only I could go back. Better times. You know, on mission trips, when sometimes when mission trips are long, and you know they're going to go long, you have to initiate up front a law, a rule. You know talking about food from back home until two days to the end of this trip. 
If you start talking about, oh, the food back home on day two, all the days become dog days. And not only are they longer and more miserable, it can wreck, honestly, it can wreck the whole morale and wreck the culture of the trip and crash the mission trip. So we, you can't talk about it until two days till wheels up. We would hark, I would tend to hearken back to Now's Pharmacy. No longer in Austin, out of business, but boy, Now's Pharmacy. Oh, it was downtown in Clarksville. And we would start our summers. This is how we'd load up the kids and take them down there. We would have, a, I don't know, a greasy hamburger or a grilled cheese, but it was all just trying to get to the end, and that was having an old-time malt. You knew it was summer. Those were the good old days when you'd have a malt at Now's Pharmacy. Take you back to a different time. It's romantic, okay? It's, I know it's romantic. We were young, dumb, and broke, but the kids were just cubs. We could still outweigh them and just parking back. And that's what's happening in David. He's tired, he's weary, and he's nostalgic. Oh, boy, when I was a shepherd boy working out in the hot sun, I'd come home and I'd go to that well just inside the gate of Bethlehem, and that water was nothing sweeter. Nothing purer than that water from that well. Wasn't just nostalgia, though. David's also hearkening to a promise. Because God had promised Israel the land of Israel. And it promised that David would be a king of that Israel. And David is now living in hiding in the caves of Adalams, looking and saying, okay, how about the promise of that land where the Philistines aren't occupying it, where we are, and how about when I'm going to be king? So his heart goes to the good old days and nostalgia. His mind goes to the promises of God, but they both end up at the same place, that well inside the gates of Bethlehem. Mmm, the water would be sweet there. And so he sighs and reminisces, and one of the three hears him. And he says to the other two, hey, did you hear, did you hear what David just said? No. Tells him the story. He goes, well, what are, what are we doing today? Nothing. <laughs> so off they went, seven miles in the heat of the Palestinian sun, up to Bethlehem, crashing through, figuring out some way to get that water from that well that are inside the gate. Know this, when you own a city, you fortify at least two things. One, the gate, keeping the right people in and out. And two, the water source. That's life. And these three musketeers fight, sneak their way through, fight their way through. They get inside the gates. Two of them are holding off all the bad, bad guys while the other one is filling this water skin with water. We got it. Let's run. Back seven miles to Adalom in the heat of the desert. That is a story of loyalty. The story is to show us what it looks like to be devoted. Actually, not loyal, not devoted, loyal devotion. That's what this story is about. It's loyal devotion. There's a Hebrew word for loyal devotion. It's the word hesed. And this is a picture of hesed. Hesed means steadfast love, loving kindness. This is it. This is what it means. Covenant loyalty. Covenant loyalty. It's a word in Hebrew that is so rich, it, we need 19 English words to describe what this synonyms, 19 synonyms for hesed. Loyal devotion. We usually save that 
for a family member or a, a person in our clan. Because it's not just mercy. It's mercy that a person can count on. It's mercy or love that's independent of conduct. It's undeserved. And Christ followers, we're supposed to be giving this and receiving this in regular doses. And when we do, when we give this kind of hesed to other people, we find out attributes of hesed, costly, selfless, loyal mercy expressed in actions, not words alone, actions found a great quote from a Hebrew scholar that said, Hesed is the loan, loaning someone else your strength instead of reminding them of their weakness. <laughs> loaning, loaning someone else your strength instead of reminding them of their weakness. If you've received Hesed, it changes your life. It alters your identity. It we say at, at Grace, at this church, we say grace transforms because of the power of grace. If we were in Hebrew, we would say hesed transforms. And in Israel, you can go to Israel today and you'll see hesed is such a powerful word. People acknowledge that, that they have it embroidered on their clothing. There's foundations named after hesed. People get it tattooed on their skins permanently. You want to see how Hesed is expressed you can for homework. Here's some fun homework. Read Psalm 136 and look at the 36 different ways Jehovah God shows Hesed, this loyal devotion to, to the entire world, and to you and to me. All right, let's go back to the story. Now we know the loyal devotion of these two, of these three. The three. They return with their prize. It's like three kids emptying their piggy banks to buy one gift to give to their dad. Here it is. They tell the stories of their crazy exploits of getting there and fighting their way in and fighting their way out and bringing it to David. David looks at this gift, and now he's just flushed with gratitude for what these men have shown. And then he takes that water skin and pours it out on the ground. Puddles right in front of the four of them. And then the ground drinks it up. <laughs> I mean, wait, if you're thinking, they're like, what did you just do? Why did you just do that? Did you miss the stories from six minutes ago where we told you what it costs to get that? No, they knew. They knew what David was doing. The passage says that the pouring out of the water was a libation. That's a church word that no one in church even uses. So we'll see other translations say it was a tribute. It was a sacrifice. It was a drink offering. It's a way of giving to the Lord. It's a drink offering. In other words, he's pouring it out for God to drink this wonderful water from that well inside the walls of Bethlehem. David is saying, the loyal devotion that you are giving me, I want you to see that I'm giving that same loyal devotion to the Lord God. Your ultimate loyal devotion here is not to me. He says, look behind me, look above me. That's where all of this is going. And those men knew three things. 
They knew that at that moment, the single most precious possession in David's life was that water sack filled with water from the well inside the gates of Bethlehem, the most precious thing that David owned. They also knew the extreme expense that was paid for that water. They also knew the third thing, that David was giving his most precious gift to the Lord. And they looked at each other and said, that's why. That's why we give you our loyal devotion. You're the type of person that would do that very thing. You, David, a man after God's own heart, this is why we love you so much. Who else would pour it out? They would drink it down. This is why we give you our loyal devotion. That's what a, lead, that's what a quality, quality character of a leader looks like. I mean, the contrast to that is a selfish leader, a taker. Decades ago, 60 Minutes did somewhat of a documentary on the city of Washington, D.C., and the topic was why so much corruption in that little bitty town, and why does, you know, Mr. Smith goes to Washington still, we're still wondering why aren't there more Mr. Smiths? And one insightful reporter that had been there decades said, well, here's, here's why. So when people end up getting to Washington, they look at that as a prize that they earned. They, 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 don't, they don't come like to serve the people. They come saying, I did this. I got myself here. And so they look at it like this is the spoils of battle and I can do whatever I want as much as I want. And they look at the, the water that is given to them and they analyze it and they say, where's the ice? Is this all? They're takers. They're Philistines. And this passage is like, this is David. Be like David. Every bit of loyal devotion that you might have coming your way, one, is a gift from God. That's not on you. That's on God's mercy. And two, every bit of that loyal devotion that you receive that's a means for you to point behind you, above you, to pour it out and say, this, your, your loyal devotion is directed to the Lord God Almighty. That's what David is doing here. You can see like Paul does that in the New Testament. Uh, P- Paul is on his many missionary journeys, and he's writing a thank you letter to the Philippians. And the Philippians, they... <laughs> They were endearing towards Paul, and Paul was endearing towards them. They were loyally devoted to him. And every time that they saw that his ministry account was getting low or bottom out, it would be the Philippians that would be first to respond to any kind of needs that he would have. And they were regular, often givers and generous givers at that. And so Paul, because of their expression of faithful and loyal devotion, he writes a letter to them. It's called the Philippians. And here's, listen to how he pours out their gifts to him as, a, as an offering, as, a, right, as an offering to the Lord. He says, this gift of yours was a fragrant, fragrant offering to God. It was an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to him. That money that you sent me, I'm just giving to the Lord. He's pouring it out. 
It's a drink offering to God. It's not about your loving devotion to me, your loyal devotion, your covenant love to me. It's your covenant love to the Lord. That's what he's doing. 2 Samuel chapter 23 is this power, <laughs> the power of Hesed. What's interesting in the, in the chapter itself is that after these stories about the three, the three, then it goes on to list the rest of the men, 37 Gibberines, 37 mighty men of God. And the last one that's mentioned, 36, just end at 36, the last one, the last word in chapter 23 is Uriah the Hittite. Uriah the Hittite. Why not just, okay, he was a mighty man of God. Why not just bury his name somewhere in the middle? It looked like it was just another name in a phone book. The author wants us to know how important this particular gibberine, this warrior, plays an instrumental part in David's life and our understanding of what Hesed means, devoted loyalty. Because the name is attached to the story where David was at the height of his fame and his ego. And in the spring, when kings, all the other kings went to war, David stayed back in Jerusalem. And in his idol, he spots a beautiful woman that belongs, that is married to another man, Bathsheba. He calls for her, has her, impregnates her. David, always the man in control, he can fix this. And he calls the husband of Bathsheba back from battle into Jerusalem because he knows this soldier will go home and be with his pretty young wife. And after they sleep together, they'll just assume the pregnancy was because of him. It's a perfect plan, except he brings home the husband whose name is Uriah the Hittite. And he's a gibberine. He's not like other soldiers. Instead of going home, he stays and works as a sentry to the palace. And when David asks him about it, he says, well, I, I can't go home and have a home-cooked meal and enjoy my wife. I can't. I, my men, I'm, I'm loyal to them. They're living in, in a field, in open field. They're eating sea rations. <laughs> I'm loyally devoted to my men. I'm loyally devoted to you, David. I'm loyally devoted to the kingdom of God. I can't do that. And what does David do with the loyal devotion of Uriah the Hittite? Is he poured out as an offering to the Lord? No, he chugs it down. He asks, where's the ice? Is this all? He sends Uriah the Hittite and a number of the men that he was probably in platoon with straight into an ambush. Thy shall not covet thy neighbor's wife. Thy shall not murder. Wow. David's working his way through the Ten Commandments. When he's finally confronted on these grotesque sins, he repents, and he knows that there's no like, sin offering for this kind of high-handed sin. This, these are two <laughs> capital offenses. And so when he confesses to the Lord and asking for forgiveness in Psalm 51, listen to what he appeals to. He, he appeals to the only hope he could possibly have. 
Psalm 51, 1, have mercy on me, O God, according to your hesed, your unfailing love, your loyal love, your steadfast love, your loyal devotion. It's covenant loyalty that he's appealing to. Why does, Dave, why does God forgive David? No, 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 better question. How? How is God even able to forgive David? Because David appeals to the nature of God, the nature of God's hesed, his loyal love. David's saying, look, 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 it's, it's, I, I'm, I need you to be loyal to your own mercy. Jehovah, I'm, I'm calling on you to be loyal to your own love. I want you to be loyally devoted to me. In all the books I read for this whole series, one Hebrew scholar said, there's one thing that you can be certain about in the life of David, and that is God's unfailing love towards David, his loyal devotion. That's what David appeals to. That's the point of the whole chapter. It's the power of hesed, the power of this loyal devotion from God himself. And the author wants us to understand that it includes any of our stories where there's a Uriah the Hittite in it. Even Uriah the Hittite in your biography is not going to keep the unfailing, loyal devotion of God from loving you. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. There's two insights into this chapter I wanted to bring to our attention. And the first one is, is that if you've ever received hesed, this kind of unmerited mercy, <laughs> either through, from God himself, through the works of Jesus Christ, dying on the cross to make you right and being raised from the dead to prove that God does in fact accept you based on his work, not on your work. That's one way to receive it. Another way to receive it is when we give it to our brothers and sisters. If you've ever been on the receiving end, if you've walked with Christ for a while, you're going to receive hesed sometime, unmerited love and loyalty. And when you receive that, the point is it changes your whole identity. It rewrites your history. It bathes your future in destiny because now you're involved in a covenant of grace. A grace covenant. The, go the gospel has the power to absolutely alter us. It will change each and every one of us into gibberim. Mighty men, mighty women of God. And here's why. Because it changes the, the, the fuel that your soul runs on. It alters what empowers your soul. Body, soul, spirit. It changes What's going, what's going on? Now, if you receive the story, if you receive this loyal love, it changes why. It changes why you do what you do. Think about this in the story we went through today. David does not order the men to go get him some water. Hey, and they say, yes, chief, whatever you say. He doesn't even suggest it. Boy, it'd be great if someone got me some water from Bethlehem. No, he doesn't even... You know, talk smack. Anybody gibbering enough to go to Bethlehem? Inside the gates, there's a well. He just sighed. He, he, he was caught daydreaming. 
And, one, and the gibberine, these, the three said, your wish is my command. Your wish is my command. It's love. The men loved David. And whatever David loved, they made sure he had it. That's the power of love. There is nothing, there's no change agent stronger than love. If you love someone, you listen for the sighs in their life. You know, after a while, I've heard a sigh. It's been going on for quite some time. But Melinda loves flowers. And if she loves flowers, I can love flowers. And every year, we, at least one adventure, we, once a year, we go looking at flowers. And every time we go on a walk and there's a hydrangea, we're going to stop and look and talk about that hydrangea. Because she sighs for that. And that power of my loving for her wants me to want her life to be filled with what she enjoys. This story is a, it's just, I love, it's a, it's a beautiful portrait of the difference between a religious person and a gospel transformed person. A, a religious person is always asking, you know, what, what do I have to do to get to heaven? What do I have to do to get God to answer my prayers? And the, that person is living their life like God is a boss. They work for God. How do I get promoted? What do, just give me a list. Tell me what to do. I'll just obey. And a gospel, a gospel transformed person, <laughs> a person that's overwhelmed by the hesed, the, the loyal devotion that God has given them, that faithful love, that soul is running on a progressively deepening love for God. You see, they, they're just falling deeper in love with Jesus Christ. And the deeper they fall in love, the more tuned their ears are to hearing his sighs. They, they just want to hear, what, what do you love? I want to make sure I can do that for you. I'm going to make that happen for you. Chapter 23, verse 15, and David sighed. Chapter 23, verse 16, and the men broke through. The further we grasp what we've received in God's covenant loyalty, covenant love from us, the more we grasp, the more we hear these sighs, the more we want to live motivated by the love of God because he first loved us. And when we look around and see what grieves his heart in this world, we say, I want to be part of fixing that. I'll cross into enemy lines. I'll do what you tell me to do. That's the first insight. The second insight is this. Jesus is all over this chapter. <laughs> I don't know if you... He's everywhere. He's playing all the major characters here. Because Jesus hears the sighs of the Father at the state of mankind, fallen and broken and totally depraved, and we can't fix what we've broken. And he hears the sighs of the Father and says... Your wish is my command. I, can, I will do what no one else can, what nothing else can. I will. And it says in Philippians chapter 2, I will humble myself. And he humbles himself to the point of like becoming man. And he, he doesn't hold on to his divine attributes for his own well-being. 
It says he humbles himself to becoming a slave. Why? To get through enemy lines. To help get something that the Father desires. Our salvation. And it says he humbles himself to the point where he becomes a slave. Becoming a slave to the point of being human. Not just human, but he dies a criminal's death. He humbles himself to the point of death. Death on the cross. That's his Loyal devotion to the Father, because the Father sighed. And the Father sees that, and he says, well, let me give this to you. And then in Philippians chapter 2, 9 through 11, says, therefore God, he's referring to the Father, the Father elevated Jesus to a place of the highest of honor and gave him the name above all names. And at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, And every tongue will declare, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. See how Jesus shows himself to be gibberine? And the Father says, I'm going to bless you with this. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And then Jesus takes that and pours it out and says, oh no, look behind me, look above me. And it says, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of of God the Father. (laughs) Even Jesus points to someone else in the Trinity. And so that's how we're to live as well. When Paul is using this as an example, the gibbering of the New Testament, Jesus showing himself in his loving devotion, he says, how do you and I apply his example in our life? Here's, he just writes it. I'm not making this up. It preceded it. Then Make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other. Love one another. Working together with one, with one mind and one purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't be so, don't try to impress others. Just be humble. Thinking of others as better than yourselves. Could I change that and say, show hesed. Show devoted loyalty to other people. Because Hesed transforms, grace transforms, and it radically changes a person's identity. And he says, pour out your life as a drink offering. Let your body be a living sacrifice to the Lord. You're involved in a grace covenant. Live out the grace covenant. <laughs> it's a great chapter, is it not? It tells us a lot, not just about David, it tells us about Jesus. Tells, a, tells us about who we are in Christ, rewrites our history, redirects our destiny. Let's thank God for that. Lord, we, uh, this passage snuck up on, on us. I, who'd have thought? What a beautiful story about loyal devotion towards men and women of integrity, but even those men and women of integrity constantly pointing to you. Lord, I'd ask that you would help us understand first and foremost that we are not working for you like you're our boss or taskmaster, that we are in a loving family relationship. And we, I'd ask that you'd help us come, become deeper in love with you, that we might hear your sighs and enjoy bringing you what you desire that your commandments would not be burdensome to us. They'd be expressions of love. 
Help us, many of us are just, are just driven in so many ways by duty. I'd ask that you would compel us by hesed, that we'd understand how much we were received in your grace and mercy so that we might be energized and fueled by that grace and mercy, that we might overflow into other people's lives with that very grace, that mercy, that loyal devotion. I'd ask that you'd help us live up to our namesake, that we would be a, a grace covenant church that gives out grace covenants. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.